and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Precluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, today's guest is making his maiden appearance here on the farm he is the host of hero paranormal as well as the website space space and he's also got a self-named website as well folks i give you guys ryan patrick burns thank you for joining me this afternoon mr burns thanks so much for having me here i i, I love that we're uh gonna discuss this yeah no it's uh it's definitely gonna be an interesting one so for this outing, we are going to be talking some skull and bones, but with a twist, we're not really going to be looking at Yale's skull and bones, though inevitably that will come up. No, we're going to be looking at the other skull and bones, the one west of the Mississippi. It resides in Utah specifically because Utah. There, it's connected to the University of Utah, otherwise known as the U of U, an institute of higher learning with its own curious history and alumni. It is even more secretive than the Yale Skull and Bones, if you can believe that, which in and of itself has a murky, undefined relationship with the Utah or the uh, Utah branch of it, I should say. And even more bizarrely, it appears to be close related to the crime of the Twelve Apostles. That's the hierarchy behind the Mormon Church, for those of you unaware. So this is going to be a trailblazing episode's kids. So on that note, let's start the show.
Okay, let's start off by looking at the University of Utah for a moment. So the U of U is really important, though it's often overlooked as far as colleges go. But a lot of crazy stuff is going on there. So first off, can you tell us a bit about the U of U's origin stories, Ryan? Yeah, the University of Utah is, it's my alma mater, and it has always been sort of the uh, northern cousin to BYU. And what I mean is they have quite the rivalry, the more staunch and um, close to the chest folks tend to go to BYU, and it is predominantly Mormon. The University of Utah seems to be basically more the, uh, I, I don't want to use the word liberal, but, but the more, more open and more bohemian of students go to the university of Utah. And it's, it's got a long history of, of interesting things. It's, it's perched right up there overlooking Salt Lake city with great views of the Mormon temple. Um, it has some ties to schools in Idaho as well, uh, such as the, uh, well, we'll get into that. But yeah, the University of Utah has a long, long history of um, being very progressive, more progressive than Brigham Young University to the south. But it also holds its secrets. And, you know, it has uh, many, many notable people who've gone through it. And of course, uh, being in the beehive state and you, you see beehives everywhere, the symbolism of the beehive, which is also a very Illuminati symbol, you see that everywhere, kind of conducive to the hive mind. Um, University of Utah also had one of the best libraries and still does, as well as they often take on some of the disregarded or more challenging professors that the other uh, school to the south brigham young university lets go uh, for example when i was there i remember that um, oftentimes uh, gay and lesbian teachers would be let go at brigham young university and they would be welcomed at the university of utah and uh, they prided themselves on that but uh, it is it's it's a really it's it's steeped in a lot of tradition. It it obviously you know uh, there's once you go red, it's it's very hard to get it out of your system, as they say. You bleed red when you go to the University of Utah. I still get uh, you know those strange tingles whenever I see them playing football or anything along those lines. Uh, and yeah, it's a it's a great school, good good place to get an education. But it is uh. It's got a lot of tradition. Now, the University of Utah is especially known for its ties uh, to medical research and tech uh, research. So I've often found uh, one of the most interesting aspects of the school to be its link to the old ARPANET, uh, the proto version of the Internet that was developed by ARPA then known as ARPA, beginning in the early 1960s. So people typically associate uh, the ARPANET with Stanford Research Institute, or otherwise known as SRI, and some of the other schools in California, maybe the University of Washington as well. Uh, but there were three nodes in total in the original setup, and the U of U was one of them. So you got anything on this topic, Ryan? 
Great point. Yeah, that that's a great question. And I think it's a good one to start off with because ARPANET, obviously, the the earlier version of the internet, which which had government uses, um, there, there's always been a strong connection to government with the University of Utah. Um, another project that was governmental in nature with specific ties to Project Paperclip was and is held pretty close to the chest at the University of Utah, which was a Dr. Mendela who came in. He was a uh, he went by the name of Dr. Green, however. And what's interesting is he did a lot of MK Ultra like projects. Mind control was his specific task, and he had an office. It's rumored at the church office building uh, just north, or I'm sorry, just east of the Mormon temple in downtown Salt Lake City, which is also in very close proximity to the University of Utah. And many of his, uh, I guess I would call them victims, remember him because he would still wear his German boots and carry around one of those German, I guess, flyswatter slappers that they're known to have during his sessions. And uh, there, there's always been kind of that government background noise to the University of Utah that a lot of people are unaware of. But yeah, I think the ARPANET and and there's other there's other things, but they they do seem to be closely related. Well, most likely the ARPANET stuff uh, would have been tied into um, continuity of government. That was, you know, one of the original reasons why it was developed. Essentially, was to continue communications in the event that the uh, U.S. government was incapacitated. And um, as to why they would have had it at the University of Utah, I mean, a, a, probably the most likely explanation would be the ties to Doug Way. I mean, that's your main uh biochemical warfare facility on the west so in establishing this network i mean that's probably one of the main institutions that you would want to try to uh stay in contact with theoretically uh if the uh, official government and communications channels were taken out so this whole area i mean dugway i think is what about like an hour and a half or something by car uh from this whole region if that and uh, could easily be reached much quicker by helicopter. And of course, there are the well. There's I've actually seen the tunnels underneath the uh, the Salt Lake City Temple myself in downtown Salt Lake City. So I will uh, say there are no allegations about that. There's the tunnels under Salt Lake City proper do exist, and it would not be surprising if you doubt me on that. By the way, just check my website. It buys up. I've got pictures of the uh, the tunnels underneath the Salt Lake Temple up there. Uh, and one of the older articles I wrote on Salt Lake City, but um, it's very possible that these uh, infrastructures, these subterranean infrastructures, would have been extended to a major research uh, university like the U of U, and quite possibly the uh, premier chemical biological warfare facility uh, across the Missis west of the Mississippi. So some interesting reasons why uh, the U of U would have been included as part of this original ARPANET uh, setup. But certainly I think the uh, continuity of government would be really high on the list with that. 
Um, so anyway, like I've kind of hinted at before, another really interesting thing about the U of U is the medical research that goes on there. And the family that's most recently been connected to it as well, uh, that would be the mysterious Huntsman family. So what can you tell us about the research uh, that is done at the U of U medically and that particular family that sponsors so much of it now? Great question. Very prominent family in Utah. I've I've actually been in their home. Um, the uh, I, I used to be in a relationship with someone who was family of the Huntsmans, and I've been in uh, John Huntsman's, uh, the 16th governor of Utah, the son. I've been in his home multiple times um, for Christmas parties, etc. He served as ambassador to Russia, I think, between 2017 and 2019, and China, I think, 20, 2009 to 2011. And yes, the Huntsman family is extremely prominent, especially when it comes to research in particular. The Huntsman Cancer Institute is by far, in my opinion, probably the foremost cancer location on the planet. And a lot of that came about in, a, in kind of a strange way. There's a reason for that. Um, John Huntsman, the father, he made the majority of his wealth. He was a very smart and opportunistic gentleman. And he made the majority of his wealth with um, what we know as styrofoam. And for all intents and purposes, the winning bid for McDonald's when they used to have the Big Mac in the styrofoam container. And this is this is where a great portion of his wealth came from because there was billions and billions served of, of these Big Macs in those styrofoam containers. Well, an interesting side effect to that is that he's a very hands-on or was a very hands-on individual and he was oftentimes involved. Well, that styrofoam, first off, uh, causes cancer. And when he became aware that he had cancer, he threw a large amount of money at research of that cancer and all, all sorts of research surrounding it. So um, even though it's been noted and we no longer use styrofoam to uh, eat our Big Macs, it's kind of interesting that that's how it all came about. The family itself is, um, they're all very, very wealthy. Um, you know, and, and that's obvious when, when you, when you come across any of them, they all have massive estates, uh, heated driveways. Their homes are usually always on the market because they're so expensive that if anybody is at all interested, they will entertain ideas of selling them. But they're a very celebrated um, family in in Utah, especially for the cancer research. But that that focus of how it all came about was actually, unfortunately, that they probably caused a lot of cancer or um, John Huntsman Sr. without meaning to caused a lot of cancer. And it's 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 unlike any cancer research institute I've ever been to the the entire building is just next level as far as technology higher end than anything I've, I've witnessed out in Boston or in LA or anything of that nature. So first off, if anybody has cancer, I highly recommend the Huntsman cancer Institute. They also have very 
serious ties to the hierarchy behind the Mormon church. Um, they have ties to politics, obviously, and they're affiliated with just about any position of power curiously throughout the history of the state. So uh, there's a lot of directions we can go from there. Yeah, they are one of the like kind of storied uh, Mormon families, right? Yeah, they are. There's a lot of families that have very interesting histories with the Mormon church. And they are, if there's royalty in Utah, they are it. And, you know, when it, it's interesting that we're talking skull and bones because there's a lot of ties to that too. You have a lot of philanthropic uh, families donating significant amounts of money to a lot of these educational, you know, whether it be BYU or the University of Utah, these these schools. And when it comes to Mormonism, genealogy, and the descendants um, that came through on the wagon trains or pioneer trail, many of them had ties to back east. And some of those ties are pretty interesting. There is obviously with Yale, you have the um, Elihu Yale who served with the British East India Company as a privateer, basically, you know, he owned slaves and traded slaves and amassed an insane fortune from trade. And he quickly rose in society and politics and was very philanthropic, donating to a number of schools. Again, um, this is kind of part of the history. And that's why they named Yale after him. And moving forward, there are a lot of interesting Yale members that have ties to Utah and the genealogy involved with some of the families here. Among them is uh, Nathan Hale, who essentially was the first spy in the United States. And he is the one that I believe said, I'm, it's unfortunate I only have one life to give for my country when they killed him. He wasn't necessarily the best spy, but he was a member of Yale's class of uh, 1773, I believe, and served as a Revolutionary War soldier and eventually a spy for George Washington. And he disguised himself as a schoolmaster. So they're always very big on education. And he was quickly recognized, arrested behind enemy lines and killed. And uh, they found all of his paperwork, including his Yale diploma and his shoes. Um, of course he yelled that very famous line. I only regret that I have, but one life to lose for my country before executed, which kind of brings us to Nathan Hale's family and their connections to Mormonism and the genealogy of the descendants of Thomas Hale of Watton, England and Newberry, Massachusetts, lots of ties to back East, uh, in the United States lines of that family tree are far and wide. And um, another bishop, Bishop Jonathan Harriman Hale, and uh, that name Harriman, of course, from the same Brown Brothers Harriman, but he, he had family who came to Utah with the main pioneer wagons of, I believe, 1848, and they were paramount with the legal system in Utah with a long line of judges and lawyers and prominent social figures in government. And much of the community in Salt Lake City, including the University of Utah. In fact, uh, I'm very close friends with some of the Hales and Crandalls and grandchildren who um, are related. And I went to school with them 
really amazing people. It's a large family, hard to not run into and become, if you're growing up in these, in this particular area to not become friends with some of these people. But when it comes to these original families that came into Salt Lake City, Utah, many have ties to the older families back East and older families in England, of course. And many of those have ties to what is known as the new world order, which seems to kind of hide as under this cover of spiritual enlightenment, much like Mormonism and, you know, searching for freedom and the freedom of choice and the freedom of religion. And the, uh, it's interesting how that all comes into play later with connections between Mormonism and the CIA and skull and bones, because here we have Nathan Hale, essentially the first spy and we have uh, Utah, which is, for all intents and purposes, kind of become the area of choice to recruit for the CIA and FBI because of these return missionaries, which spread all across the globe, learn the ways of other countries and cultures and the language. They come back to Utah after their two-year missions, and they are already very well-versed on how to keep secrets due to their religious affiliation. So um, that's very prominent here in Utah. It's become really a recruiting center for the CIA and the FBI. And of course, with the new NSA listening center uh, there near Utah Lake, it's quite literally become ground zero for intelligence gathering and data. So there's a, there's a, there's a lot that goes into the intelligence community that comes out of the community of Salt Lake City and Utah in general. You forgot to mention the cars, bro. You guys transport a lot of cars across the country. People love to hire Mormons to do that, or so my understanding was at least as far back as the 90s. Um, yes, it's also interesting. The Hale family were uh, also uh, hereditary members of the Society of Cincinnati, as well as were uh, two of Joseph Smith's wives. Well, they were uh, involved in families that were hereditary members. But um, yes, that's another one that sort of bleeds into so many of these other groups. Um, but let's see. Okay, so getting back here to the U of U for just one moment, you know, I've noted that there were a lot of celebrated graduates and other people connected to the university over the years, typically in relation to their science and medical programs, as we've already kind of alluded to. But there were two especially interesting people linked to the school. Uh, one was Carl Rove and the other was Ted Bundy. Uh, so what can you tell me about uh, their ties to the U of U? Very interesting, interesting individuals. And uh, yeah, let's start with Carl, I guess. Um, Carl Rove obviously is a master of statecraft, holds a lot of secrets, and always seems to be involved with uh, institutions, whether it be the Hoover Institution or he, very, very involved with the uh, intelligence community and politics. And he was much at home at the University of Utah and quickly, quickly gained traction. And he is, um, he's a well-known University of Utah uh, member. He is definitely going to be on the higher end of respect comparatively to Ted Bundy, but that's not to take away from Ted Bundy. He was also very intelligent. He used the university 
of Utah in particular as sort of a home base and the avenues which are nearby as a killing grounds, the geography around the University of Utah is very interesting. It's very mountainous. It's sort of cradled in a bowl right there with the Huntsman Cancer Institute. The avenues are to the north of that. And Ted would kind of rent these apartments in the avenues, which essentially the avenues at that time were sort of a uh, high-end, posh, hippie establishment for the most part in the areas where Ted would rent. And these were very um, understanding people. So it was really easy for him in his Volkswagen bug to get away with what he was doing. And again, very intelligent, very enmeshed with the culture of Utah and Mormonism. He, he, he was a good, he looked like a good Mormon boy. And I think that's part of the predatory, um, the scariest thing from a predatory perspective is his appearance had absolutely nothing to do with what was behind that facade. And I've since befriended people who have shown me some of the homes that Ted Bundy would use as killing sites there in the avenues. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting area because behind the University of Utah, there are a lot of odd things in the hills. Um, first of all, you have these, the, this area that literally called the living room and it is, I don't know exactly how it's been created, but they are stone chairs and tables and things of that nature that have been placed there for obvious uh, gatherings. And um, these these hiking trails have been used by a variety of predators that are looking uh, to gather victims. Um, curiously, another odd thing behind the University of Utah entering Immigration Canyon is the This is the Place Monument which essentially is um, a tribute to the pioneers coming out of that particular canyon when they found the valley. And there's a statue of Father Escalante and um, Brigham Young. And this is where Brigham Young said, this is the place, the new Zion, and Zion in every meaning of the word. And that area has been a party site for um, not only predators, but all student body, you know, Anyone looking to party, that that was an area that was very well used. And this is uh, this canyon in particular, Immigration Canyon, has been steeped in with a long history of, of strange murders um, of every kind. One particular home there had a full ritualistic murder where everyone was killed in the establishment. At the top of Immigration Canyon, you have a lot of unsolved murders that take place for some reason. But most bizarrely, these all kind of happen in the mountains surrounding and in the avenues surrounding the University of Utah. And yeah, in the 80s, I mean, this was, this was, it wasn't just Ted doing this stuff, but he, he got caught and he was especially interesting because he was so intelligent. He did not fit the bill, and if they didn't have so much evidence, I don't think they ever would have caught him. So I think I know the area you're talking about. That's um, 
what was it it's like what is there a part of the university or something that kind of overlooks the site or something like that which is in a bit of a wooded area and there's supposedly like a tunnel or something like that there that went down into some lair is that the site there are a variety of tunnels and you know the same the, the same area i'm sure you do the same area is used by a lot of um yeah, I mean, I Companies. was told typically you find also like dead animals that looked like they've been ritualistically sacrificed in that area, in addition to the beer cans and all the other stuff. I mean, yeah, all the graffiti absolutely out there. Absolutely. And and there's a lot of corporate interest that is government related. The testing of animals, for example. And we have um a, a lot of plausibly deniable corporations that have government interest whether it be uh you know on the aerospace side more the more the chemical side a lot a lot of secret testing going on with animals i befriended somebody who was a veterinarian that was basically giving me the rundown of just how many animals were being tested on within i mean a 2 mile radius of this research park is what they call it and this research park, I mean, I was floored with the um, with the number of animals daily that were being used for very secretive reasons to uh, test all kinds of things being developed. So it's it's kind of a uh, sacrificial mountain in, in many, many ways. Yeah, no, it's definitely an interesting place. Um, well, anyway, though, let, let's start getting into the uh, U of U Skull and Bones. Uh, so when exactly was this branch established? So the um, officially it, it was 1910, but I believe there's a lot to uh, show that it was being launched in 1909. 1910 is the claim date of initiation. But as I said, I'm I'm fairly sure it was launched in 1909. And it does have ties, at least prospectively, to Yale's Skull and Bones and Freemasonry, obviously. They are not as well embraced as they are at Yale, much more secretive, more Freemasonic, almost as if uh, any of the mistakes they made at Yale, they sort of tried to button up at the University of Utah. There's... Uh, a lot of espionage and secrecy around it. Um, they do not seem to take kindly to anybody digging into anything. And they have a variety of locations in the community where they have been known to gather. So it's harder to kind of pinpoint them and say they are always here or always there. They've been known to, uh, They've been known to basically appear in public whenever they are on speaking on behalf of the order, but they do so with masks on to protect their identity. Yet many of them have been outed later later in life, uh, which is fascinating. We have Russell Nelson, who is the current president of the Latter-day Saints religion or the Mormon church, and he was a member and he has been outed. We have uh, Bob Bennett as well, who very high degree politician. I've also had the opportunity to be in his home multiple times, but he was also a member. 
and he amassed a great deal of community uh, praise for for being in politics for so, so long, and a variety of other trailblazing individuals, but they they definitely seem to be a more careful chapter of the Brotherhood of Death in that they they are super, super secretive, which makes sense given given the Mormonism ties to the CIA and the fact that many of the people involved come from families that have a history of this. They've basically avoided trouble or avoided outsiders. And it's uh, they, they do this all kind of under the, the cover of education, but there's a lot more to the order. So I keep reading, okay, about obviously the connections with Yale and Skull and Bones, but no one has ever uh, really specifically named like who might have actually directly uh, been used to establish the Utah version of it. Further, I mean, it's insisted that the two societies aren't affiliated with one another. Uh, in fact, in general, it seems like they've done all they possibly can to make the relationship as ambiguous as possible. So do you have any thoughts on how potentially the Yale Bonesmen might have brought the institution to the U of U specifically? Yes, there was a particular member that moved to Utah and brought this um, manifestation of the order to Utah. He, it was something that he was unwilling to leave behind, apparently. And uh, it, as you know, it, they they seem to quickly involve their friends in this uh limitless power ideology or this this primal void that they seem to embrace that exists between good and evil the center path if you want to call it that and they'll do anything to ensure its existence what i've been told is that in 1909 this member came over and I do have his name, but I can't out it at the moment because, um, well, we'll get to that in a minute. But it basically, what they believe, from my understanding and, and the little bit that I've dug up, is that they, they believe in the beginnings of esoteric knowledge delving from there into deeper Kabbalah or Jewish mysticism becoming masters of their destiny. And they quite literally, you know, believe they, they are, I guess, um, Sabbatian Frank, Frankists. So they, they use this mysticism or they use this way or ideology of thinking, this theology in ways that are most beneficial to them at the moment. And that's why many of the ruling families such as the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and other main Illuminati families assume the religion of whatever culture and geographic area they are in. In fact, I have been told by people, you know, living in Utah and growing up in Utah, my, my father was LDS and my mom was Catholic. And I had been taken aside multiple times in my life and been told, hey, Ryan, if you really want to succeed in life, you really should embrace Mormonism and become a Mormon. And it wasn't, you know, what you would expect. It's not, you know, you should do this to find God. If you feel the spirit, if you want to be saved, that was not the message. The message was, hey, son, if you really want to get far in life here, 
you should really embrace this church and this ideology. And in other words, convert for my benefit, like financially. Um, I did not. And it, it was definitely, I, I, I won't say shunned, but I did feel like I was not a part of many things. So um, it does seem that there's a lot of individuals who quite literally assume that religion of the culture and geographic area they're in for their own well-being. And this is an area that intersects with a lot of power. And I think that, you know, that, that imagery of the pirate that is usually known with skull and bones, you know, going all the way back to Elihu Yale, who served with the British East India Company, that's kind of still the case. You know, it's get what you can while you can. And it personifies this limitless power or, you know, filling this primal void that is um, that, that is taught in many of these secretive groups. And I'm glad that you mentioned the uh, Owl and Key because it has a lot to do with Skull and Bones. It has a lot of ties to uh, other organizations that are very important, um, such as the Fijis and other secret societies and fraternities um, all through Idaho and Utah. So yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of interesting connections between this. We do want to get into the Allen Key now. Uh, for those of you unaware, this is another one of these fraternities at the U of U. And of course, it's interesting because Yale has its own, it's, uh, was it the scroll and key there, but very similar name to this one. And then obviously the uh, the owl symbolism with uh, the connections to Minerva and all that good stuff. So can you tell us about uh, the Allen Key? Yeah, so Allen Key shares a lot of symbolism with um, the Fijis, um, which are basically a chapter of the Phi Gamma Delta. And uh, it is also, it utilizes a lot of owl symbolism, much like Bohemian Grove, you know, like always keeping a 360 degree view for anybody that is trying to smuggle in or smuggle out ideologies that could hurt the order or society. And, you know, not waiting for being told that you can take them out, but just it's included. It's just assumed that that is the responsibility of its members to not allow this smuggling of ideas in and out. And um, it, it kind of comes back to this intelligence based operation mindset that we see so prevalent, this hive mind that they, they will stop at nothing and um, the mission is to financially benefit themselves and financially benefit the others in their fraternity. And now women are involved in Allen Key, where traditionally the skull and bones is only male. Uh, Allen Key also had prominent members. Um, some of those we've already discussed, Bob Bennett, Russell Nelson, and they will do anything to ensure not only the success of their brothers, but their own success. So this also seems to be very key to this organization, as well as, you know, the way it acts in Yale. And 
these these families give tons of money to to the University of Utah. And I think eventually um, they all volunteer to basically promote the order, but in a way that it's uh, kept in the bloodline. So I think a lot of these initiates, which are tapped yearly, and the amount is the same, there are 15 that are tapped each year. And I believe many of them are quite literally the same families over and over again, much as we see in the Yale order of the skull and bones as well. Now, you keep mentioning that there are connections to the fraternities in Idaho. Uh, would any of them happen to uh, be connected specifically to the University of Idaho in uh, Moscow, Idaho, which is uh, the site, of course, recently of that uh, quadruple homicide that has so captivated the public? Uh, I believe a frat or what a sorority house, no less, right? That's right. And the that Moscow, Idaho has a lot of old connections. And a lot of the connections we're talking about are most easily summed up as the invisible empire is what I've heard it called. So, you know, it's it sounds modern and edgy or a catchphrase, but it's not. It, it's, you know, a lot of people nowadays use the blanket term Illuminati. But, you know, these are the people that do not want to be in that focus. They These are the age-old secret societies of the Freemasons, the Knights Templar, the Knights of Malta, the Ancient Order of the Rose Cross, and countless others, including, you know, more pu public, like not-so-secret facade religions. And it's, it's strange because I don't want to sound hypocritical here, as many of these great societies are... I'm not trying to attack them because they do a lot for, well, they've done a lot for this country. They, they do a lot for our intelligence community, et cetera. But there is seemingly this secret kingdom is my favorite term for it. And it, it's basically a new world order movement, a partnership with a lot of these bloodline families. And they do take on newcomers, but they believe that they are arguably those who oversee the rest of us. So uh, you traditionally hear of like the 13 families of the Illuminati. I've heard it's upwards of 15 or 17, depending on the stock market nowadays. But it's important that, you know, that does change. Um, these connections to the 322 chapter at the University of Utah and also Yale are connections that have to do with this brotherhood of death, which is a very German ideology, very very German in its essence, you know, it literally comes from Bavaria. Um, as I mentioned, Project Paperclip scientists were brought in on the low to do a lot of MK Ultra stuff at the University of Utah, specifically Dr. Mendela, who went by the alias Dr. Green. But a, a lot of these German organizations or secret orders, they worship something a little different than the rest of us, which is Eulohia, the goddess, and they they plot sort of an underground conspiracy to basically dominate and control the world as we know it, and they do it. They actually accomplish it. There's no question that what we're witnessing is the accomplishment of that. And they they seem to connect in this brotherhood of death, these uh, educational fraternities, these um, Freemasonic in nature movements, and they basically, the, the theology in general seems to be very 
very uh, Frankist, like they're Sabbatian Frankists is the best way to put it. So this, this gentleman, uh, Shabbatai Zedi, Zevi, as he's known, or he's also known as Shabbatai Z, was basically a self-proclaimed Messiah who, to make a long story short, began a movement of satanic Kabbalistic sects that sprung forth after his prominence. And these Bavarian groups really attached themselves to this, as well as a couple other sects. But for the sake of time, we'll just concentrate on the darkest sect, which erupted from this unique situation. And that's the sect of Sabbatian Frankists. And they they basically, it is a very, you know, the, en- the ends justify the means, but their ends are much further down the field than anybody believes. They are very multi-generational in their mindset. They're not, they're not just looking at the, the goalposts. They're looking at, you know, not winning the game. They're going to get the stadium and the school that it's at and the state that it's in. And, you know, just a completely different mindset than the average human being. But, um, yeah, for, for all essence, for, for, for all, I, I, all I can really say is they all seem to be of this sect of Sabbatian Frankists. So another curious thing about the uh, U of U skull and bones that I noticed was the admission of women, which, I mean, obviously nowadays isn't that shocking, but I mean, they were doing this as far back as 1979. Uh, This was something like 10 years before Yale's version of skull and bones did such a thing. And when it happened at Yale, it was fairly controversial among senior members. As uh, legend has it, uh, William Buckley Jr., reportedly changed the keys to the crypt and didn't didn't give certain members copies of them for uh, close to a whole year. So why did the U of U transition even earlier? And why was there say, you know, why wasn't there kind of a similar hissy fit over it? Really good question. I think that, you know, the given the time period that this took place, they they sort of uh, allowed them into one order and not necessarily in the other, sort of as a designated um, decoy of a society. But there are still a lot of secretive male organizations in Utah that do not allow women in. And um, some have only recently done so. Uh, one of those is the Alta Club in Salt Lake City, which for all purposes was an all-male, super wealthy, super elite organization or club where one had to pay remarkable dues just to enter. It was uh, very close on 4th South to the temple grounds and very secure. And there's many more, but I believe that in part of the governance of the way that this particular fraternity of skull and bones order 3t2 at the u of u has been managed they have been very careful to not try to bring any attention whatsoever to their order in fact one of the worst things that has happened in their history is one gentleman named tom morrow uh was so psychologically broken from his initiation into the order that he had to undergo serious psychological therapy 
What's odd is that the University of Utah itself actually paid for this therapy. So that kind of goes to show just how powerful yet behind the scenes this order is to the U of U. It's much like you hear that Skull and Bones at Yale is pulling the strings and has their hands on the purse of Yale. It seems to be very similar and compatible with the way things are managed out here. But let's not get off track as to why this is the case. But these little these little stories that come out when when things like this happen, it it really not only goes to show how powerful the order is, but yet how secretive they don't want any of this getting out. Um, interestingly, I met Tom through a, an absolutely unrelated situation. Really nice guy. Also worked for a government contractor uh, later in life. But he, you know, still could really not talk about what took place and didn't want to talk about it. So it, it's it's definitely the highest secrecy when it comes to these groups. Now, you've mentioned already on a couple of occasions here that one of the members' names who has come out, interestingly enough, considering the uh, rather commendable job that they have done at maintaining the uh, secrecy of their membership roles, but uh, one name that has come out is Russell M. Nelson. So do you want to go a bit more in depth into who this guy is and his significance to the LDS? He, yes, he is. he is by far as high as you can climb on the hierarchy in the LDS church, um, the Latter-day Saints, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has an essential hierarchy that is um, vast. And it's difficult to climb up, but he has got to a point where he is no longer just a man. He is quite technically considered a prophet or a direct link to the Almighty. So it's interesting that he has been outed as a member of Skull and Bones at the U of U, but it does kind of fall in a line with uh, many of the members and where they eventually ascend to and end up. And he is extremely powerful. He's He's been uh, ordained is the word, you know, much beyond what a man would be and is considered considered the utmost basically like the pope in the catholic church would be the closest way to describe the relationship of being in his position to the mormon church or the lds church he he, he is over the quorum of the 12 apostles much like in biblical biblical times there are 12 apostles as part of this hierarchy and He's, he's the highest post in the land. He's interestingly had some very, uh, I guess, unfavorable things come out, um, more so to family members of his, but there have, there have been previous people in his position that have had some strange ritualistic uh, sexual things come out. And Gordon B. Hinckley is one of them. He was associated with a couple of brothers called the Hunt Brothers. They owned a very successful car dealership in town. And uh, some videotapes were leaked that 
essentially showed Gordon B. Hinckley and these Hunt brothers involved in very unbecoming activities. Um, they were said to uh, bring in younger kids, uh, prostitutes, the use of drugs, which in, in in the LDS religion, even using coffee is considered, you know, a no-no. So these these things were way off the table and shouldn't be done. But again, these were all done in very, very typical secrecy, usually at safe houses or locations that these Hunt brothers had established and were they were considered safe. Um, some of those VHS tapes are still out there and you can you can come across them. In fact, uh, the Hunt brothers themselves um, were bishop. One was a bishop and the other one rose ranks in the LDS religion as well. So this is not uncharacteristic. It's happened before. Uh, now, more recently with Russell M. Nelson, he has had family members who have kind of been involved in some uh, court dealings dealing with the same type of thing. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it was, it was of a ritualistic and sexual nature and very, very sealed as far as public, uh, availability to get information on this, but he's had family members that were close to him that have been, um, outed in the community. And it's hard. It's, I, I'm not trying to associate that on him, but it is just the reality that this is, uh, they are closely related to him and this has come out. So whether or not this is all bizarrely the usual or not, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm not super knowledgeable on the subject, but I mean, I, I can't really recall that a modern, um, you know, I mean, uh, head of the uh, Quorum of the Twelve Apostles has really been subjected to this kind of treatment. And I mean, at least uh, here in nearby D.C., uh, generally, if anything of significance is released to the public, it's done with the intention of either gathering support for a certain policy or it's done by one party or faction to embarrass another party and faction and stop what they're trying to do. So, yeah, I, I don't know necessarily if that's the same way that leaks work in Utah, but it seems like in this capacity, there had to be some kind of ulterior motive to it, wouldn't you say? I don't think you're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, I think that, you know, many of these groups and religions, whether we're talking about the Order of 322, the Society, or uh, other religions, they 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 tend to remain very loyal and it works the the connections to freemasonry that the lds church has are hard to ignore um for example the endowments and main rituals as well as priesthood rituals of mormonism for the most part very almost minutely with very little or no variation whatsoever to Freemasonic rituals. And keep in mind that there are three heavens in Mormonism or the LDS church. And to arrive at the highest heaven or the highest degree, you must receive instructions on how to be quote unquote saved to the highest degree or the highest heaven. So the third degree of heaven. And it's interesting that they are also very secretive of these rituals. It is not 
something that is broadcast. Yeah, not just anybody can go into these areas of the temple grounds of the uh, Mormon church in Salt Lake City and, and see what's going on. They, they, they wear garb that is very secretive. They obviously, um, many people have probably heard of Jesus jammies or angel underwear or, you know, that's got a ton, a ton of names, but they do wear a special underwear with Freemasonic symbolism all over it. And basically the more secret, the better when it comes to a lot of these rituals. So it would only make sense that members in this second chapter of Skull and Bones in the United States would be very secretive and make the sacrifices to the society that they have to make to achieve the goals that they have to achieve. All right. Are there uh, any other links uh, between the LDS's Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the U of U Skull and Bones besides Mr. Nelson? You know, the the only other connections and basically i i think are is this enlightenment that's promised um keeping members wanting more and uh under under this cover of spiritual enlightenment they're able to literally have that carrot on the stick to make their members or urge i should use suggest that their members not only avoid these outside sparks from the profane but stay on task with their sect and their order, helping other members and themselves gain power and prestige in whatever area they're in, whether that be in Connecticut or in Salt Lake City. And they all seem to uh, play ball. You know, they they're they're it's they're on the same team. Having attended the, the U of U, did you have any uh, run-ins yourself with Skull and Bones that you want to share with us? Nothing in particular. The name did come up, and their playgrounds or the their areas where they would hang out were fairly that they, they came into play. And um, but no, it, it's it's nothing that I can I can for sure say that I had a guaranteed run-in with any particular member. Well, all right. Uh, did you have any closing thoughts on Skull and Bones here before we sign off? Um, I just find that it it's interesting that this society has only recently been, I guess, outed wouldn't be the right word, but that we've become aware of this topic. And it was formed in 1909, 1910. It really makes me wonder, you know, what other societies we have not become aware of that may have been formed and how long it might be before we actually know. And that that's just the uh, nature of the beast, I guess. No pun intended. Well, I mean, yeah, it seems like it was part of a, you know, a similar process that was done with a lot of the other, um, you know, cities in the West Coast that would become significant going into the 20th century. I mean, of course, in San Francisco, you have Bohemian Grove, uh, the Bohemian Society there. And uh, there was actually quite a bit of overlap uh, with the faculties at Stanford and uh, Berkeley in the early years i don't know if that's necessarily still the case now but i mean at least up to like the 50s 60s 70s thereabouts um 
both faculties had their own you know campsites uh, at the bohemian grove site and then of course uh in la i mean you had the um you know the kind of enigmatic tuna club of avalon off the santa Catalina islands and then later you got the uh the california club and uh was it the uh the jonathan society i think so um yeah there was kind of this singular pattern it seems like uh and i should point out to the uh two uh, actual societies based in LA have typically had very close relationships with the University of Southern California as well. So yeah, there's just, there's a lot of this sort of similar overlap with some of the major cities uh, in the Western part of the United States. I mean, I'm sure there's probably more of this as well in the East Coast. I mean, we know about uh, Skull and Bones, obviously some of the societies at the uh, the early universities in Virginia. But yeah, it is a fascinating topic. And it seems like it was especially, um, you know, a big push for this in areas that have become very central to the military industrial complex or research geared towards it. I mean, of course, uh, Stanford and SRI and Silicon Valley itself were largely built up by the U.S. Navy. And, and so much of the research there is geared towards defense purposes. Uh, I mean, there it's kind of the same thing with Salt Lake City and the, uh, the silicone slopes that have emerged. And um, also to that NSA post, it's at, uh, I think, Camp Williams, which is a site of a very uh, significant and enigmatic uh, special forces group as well. Um, and then L.A. again, I mean, that's another town with just so much uh, uh, of influence for propagandistic purposes alone. It's staggering. So uh certainly you can see why there would have been a major effort to uh ensure that the right sort of uh men and in most cases they were men uh were running these yeah. particular regions for that kind of significance so yeah it's uh though important to put utah in this context because it is often overlooked in terms of some of the uh, uh i guess more fashionable or trendy locations well, so Utah, Utah is strange like that. It sort of hides in plain, a lot of these things hide in plain sight, like, like you've mentioned. And I'm really glad that you hit on something most people overlook, which is that chemical research, you know, with the Huntsman's, et cetera. And this is something about University of Utah that a lot of people overlook is the, the University of Utah's area they know as Research Park. It's also nicknamed Bionic Valley. And, um, Huntsman Chemical Corporation is there. If you look at the list, uh, BlackRock Microsystems, if you look at, you know, a lot of interesting chemical, neuropsychiatric, predictive biotech, genetics companies, and a lot of stories come out of there, which are hard to believe. In fact, one place that I was able to get into is a location called Evanston Sutherland. And it sort of um, has this facade as you know a computer graphics company which in reality uh i went inside and it was nothing but simulators for you know the intelligence community with an, an aer aerospace and strange laboratories and some of the stories that come out of there especially a company called myriad genetics um this was one of the worst uh from from the testing Thing that I discussed earlier with animals, but there have been stories and information that have come out of there that they are working on things that are 
I mean, next level, very, uh, things that you really can't wrap your head around, like why they would be doing what they're doing, but they, they claim that it's just, you know, checking genes, um, to check on the progression of treatments of diseases. But in reality, it just sounds like absolute nightmare hall. And there, there's been stories of people seeing in the mountains around there and, um, all the way up into the Uinta basin of Utah, I heard a story of someone who claimed to have either worked there or worked there temporarily, where he was told to just get rid of some of these animals. And one of them escaped. And apparently it was dog-like and had tubes coming out of it. And it overpowered these two security guards with their shotguns and made its way out of the van. And that's kind of the stuff that, you know, even though it's, it's kind of uninformative from a realistic standpoint, you don't know what the long-standing effects of having a creature like that escape a van that's taking animals to to some kill site. You don't know what the long-standing repercussions of that could be. So there are a lot of strange, strange companies that are doing research right there at the University of Utah, over 40 companies that I'm aware of. And and uh, I'm really glad that you touched on that because it's it's an important facet. Yeah, no, I've actually <clears throat> heard the uh, the dog story too. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was like a kind of a thing where some people wondered if it was some kind of werewolf or again, if it was just something that escaped from one of these research facilities. But yeah, I mean, I think that's also why it's significant that Dugway is very close to this whole region. Um, and certainly it would be interesting to know if there were uh, formal ties between the University of Utah and Dugway, given all the medical research. I mean, it seems like there would almost inevitably have to be. And I mean, that's kind of a, another interesting aspect, too, about the you know, the ties that it has to uh, Stanford and SRI going back, uh, at least to the ARPANET days, because, again, um, that whole area has become so big and, uh, you know, computer technology with the Silicon Slopes in recent years. But like you're saying, I mean, the medical research there is also staggering. And I mean, Stanford, again, also does a lot of this kind of stuff as well, especially with the life sciences, neuroscience, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, the Stanford Medical Facility is equally revered. So, yeah, there is that kind of um, interesting parallel with those uh, universities. I mean, obviously, too, the sort of Bohemian Grove slash Skull and Bone ties and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's it's certainly a, uh, a very important and little uh, touched upon subject with that. I'm glad you brought it up as well and gave a few more details to it. <clears throat> yeah, interesting places both on the East Coast and out West, but it seems like the uh, the people pulling the strings are the same, same individuals. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, folks, we will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>
was working at the quarry, y'all. I ain't in a hurry, y'all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki, up. Stuck down in the stick. Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what. Put it up and knock it down. Moving on that big around. Come on, mama, jump down. Turn around, do it for me. Stick it out. Say one, two, three, Geronimo. Jump, baby, we gotta go. Hands tied, blindfold. Jump into that battle zone. Get the fuck out, cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline, you feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo, jump baby, we gotta go Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the great While the greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a gang is Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday. Civilization, what? 